This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is episode 119. A lot to talk about in this episode, so no small talk. It's already been too much small talk, so let's get right to it. Three more things I wish I knew then about fly tying. So I've done a number of these podcasts, kind of this theme over the years, and it has to do with things that I know now that I wish I would have known when I started fly fishing or when I had started fly tying. And fly tying is one that I, I'm still learning quite a bit. I'm, I'm certainly not an expert fly tire. I'm a solid intermediate, if I'm going to be honest. And that's even with 20 plus years of fly tying in my past. And that is a significant figure to point out because I started and stopped a number of times. I probably haven't tied in earnest up until maybe the last six or seven years, really since right around the time that casting across started. And I just kind of put my head to the grindstone and said, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to learn to tie the patterns I want to tie, and I'm going to get them to where they are fishable. I want to be proficient in creating fishable flies, not in creating flies that mimic exactly what I see in magazines or in tying books or in tying tutorials online. And as I've done that, my flies have become much prettier and they've certainly become much fishier and I've enjoyed it a lot more. And so I think that's that's one of the big things that I want to communicate that these things I'm going to share. So I shared three in a podcast about a year ago and I'll share three more now. These are things where if you are just about to start tying, then keep these things in mind. They will be helpful. If you have started and stopped and you just kind of have, you know, a, not really a tying desk, but a box of stuff in the corner that you pull out every once in a while, you might make a couple of egg flies, might make a couple of woolly buggers. But besides that, you're just, you're, you've been discouraged and you just don't feel like you're much of a fly tire. These are three things that maybe can get you jump started. And if you are an expert tire, if you are very proficient and you can knock out some beautiful looking magazine centerfold quality flies, 
then maybe these are things that you can work into your communications as you are showing other people how to tie. And that doesn't mean you're necessarily a YouTube tying tutorial master or you are somebody who goes to fly shops and demonstrates, but just as you show maybe your kids or somebody in your life a couple of things. These are things that could be beneficial to communicate because they have been beneficial to me as I look back at some of the reasons why I think I probably could have had a better experience starting off tying 20 years ago. So the first one is to start small start small. Now by this I do not mean pick up a pack of size 24 hooks and learn that way. That is certainly not the way to do it. But what I mean is start small in the sense of limit what you are trying to do. So I'll give you a great pattern for starting small. A green weenie. A green weenie. If you don't have green weenies in your fly box, are you even fly fishing? So a green weenie is a very simple pattern. I mean, some people complicate the thing by putting a loop on the tail, but let's let's not get into that. So what happens when you tie a green weenie? Let's say we have a size 14 hook, or maybe even a size 12 hook, all right? A size 12 hook. When you tie a green weenie, if you want it to look nice, and, and I think, as you know, going back to what I was saying before, you don't want your flies to look professional, you can tie a professional-looking green weenie within a couple days, a couple of tying sessions, because really all you have to learn how to do is learn where you tie on your thread, where you stop tying your thread, learn how to slowly wrap chenille, and then learn how to build up a head. Now, this is a great forgiving pattern for learning how to build up a head, and we'll talk about that in a second, but everyone knows how to tie a green weenie. Thread at the proper tie-in point for thread, which again, that's something that you need to learn. It, it, you don't do it right behind the hook eye, you don't do the middle of the hook, where do you tie in your thread? So you look at a diagram, look at a picture, doing it a, maybe at a hook eye's length behind where the hook eye joins the shank of the hook, and you tie that in, tie back, tie in your chenille, bring your your thread forward to where you tied in, and then slowly make um, counter wraps of that chenille up to where your thread is. And it's a simple thing. Are you able to work slowly? Why does it matter that you make those wraps in a nice, even manner? You want to create a nice, smooth body because, you know, the trout really care about it. But it's just a, a good discipline to learn. And then you tie that material off, learn how to tie that down so it's not too tight, so that you snap your thread, it's not too loose, that that last wrap of chenille bubbles up, and then learn how to create a tapered head. And worst case scenario, if you tie a really bad looking head on that fly, it's still fishable and you, you know, finish it off, drop a little head cement on there and throw it in your box and you're still good to go. But now tie another one. Try to make that, those wraps, that chenille even smoother. Try to make that head even a better taper and putting that whip finish right where it needs to be. That's a great example of where you just start small. And if you can knock that out, you've got some great skills. So now bump it up to something that requires a little bit more technique, a waltz worm. So a waltz worm, another great pattern. You need to have plenty of these in your box, but the same thing. Now you're working with dubbing. Can you build a dubbing noodle and build it in such a way or tie the dubbing on in such a manner that it tapers up from thin by the bend of the hook up to that nice bulbous body up right behind the head? And you can do that over and over and over again. And this is a great pattern because you're not tying in a tail. I know you can, there's some fancy waltz worm variations out there, but I would say don't put a bead head on. Just thread on, wind that thread back, put some dubbing on. I don't know if you can hear me <laughs> pretending to uh, put make a dubbing noodle on the thread with my fingers. But, you know, do that and then try it over and over and over and over again. And I know that it's it's sometimes you get a lot some of those fibers trapped in your thread as you unwrap and try to do it over again. 
but what are you out? You're out maybe two inches of thread and out at the tiniest little bit of fuzz of dubbing that over and over again. And then you can learn, okay, how do I stop this dubbing? How much dubbing do I use to make a dubbing noodle? And it's a very, very simple pattern, but once you've finished it, and again, tie it off, make a nice head on it, now it's a perfectly fishable fly. But now what do you do? Now when you have that that pattern nailed down, you throw a tail on it. And you effectively have a really simple hair's ear nymph. Uh, if, if you do that, if you're using you know a, hair, a hair's ear or some other sort of material like that, you have a very simple nymph where before, if you had to bail on that whole, whole pattern, you didn't spend time tying the tail. And I know if you're an experienced tire, you're saying tying a tail, that doesn't take any time. But if somebody who's just starting off, all those little things can add up and they can build in frustration and they can compound. And so start with patterns that you can tie. So, you know, I, I mentioned this in last week's episode, most of my hair's ears don't have wings casings. And part of that is just speed. And part of that is that's just one more thing for, for me to goof up. I would rather put a dab of colored UV epoxy on the back of my fly than tie in one more thing, redub uh, my thread and make a little, uh, you know, head on the fly using that. It's just easier for me. And I, I, I don't, I don't worry about it. But that's another thing where you say, okay, I'm going to tie in a tail. Now I'm going to do my body. Now I'm going to put a wing case on. Now I'm going to put in more dubbing. And you just step by step, and you realize that the fish aren't necessarily going to care that every component is in that fly. Is it nice to know how to do those things? Absolutely. But build your way towards it. So that is my first bit of advice, is to start small in your fly tying. Don't feel like you need to crank out that beautiful, perfectly proportioned hairs your nymph like you see in the fly shop or in the magazines. Just tie a waltz worm, tie a waltz worm with a tail, um, put a bead head on it if you want to really, you know, uh, take a shortcut for a good looking and good fishing fly. Start small. Secondly, learn about materials and hooks. Learn about materials and hooks. Not all feathers are created equal. And this is something, again, that experienced fly tires, it's just second nature to know the difference between a bad bucktail and a good bucktail, to know the difference between a good hook and a bad hook. Some of the stuff there, I mean, well, a lot of the stuff, there's great resources online. You Google how to choose the right bucktail for fly tying, um, how to choose uh, feathers for streamers versus feathers for dry flies. And these are great things for you to just have a basic understanding of. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be able to grade them, you know, superior, good, uh, satisfactory, bad, awful. Uh, just what makes a good feather for this application, what makes a bad feather for this application. And there's plenty of resources online. There's a lot of opportunities for you to figure this out simply by going into a fly shop and saying, well, why should I pick this one over this one? Why should I pick that one over over the other one? And they can help you figure those things out. And a lot of times it does come to trial and error, realizing, you know what, I bought this offline and all the colors coming off of my hands. I probably need to source them from a a more repeatable and and a better source. So getting back to materials, this is also going to help your tying. I mean, if you f- buy a bunch of feathers that have really, really rigid stems, they're not going to be great for uh, a, a learning tire. And a lot of those feathers aren't going to be great for palmering, wrapping around the hook. They might be good for longer streamer patterns that utilize a flat wing or something like that. 
but getting to know that and then getting to know the component parts of the feather. What does it mean that there's a shiny side of the feather? How do you identify the concave side of the feather? Um, the, how, how a feather bends? Just getting to understand the nature of those pieces. And then also just what are the applications for flat wax nylon? What are the uh, applications for round thread? What are the diameters of thread? Getting to understand those things, not at an expert level, but just generally speaking, why should I use this material versus that material? for these two or three patterns that I want to tie. You can't just walk into a fly shop and buy black thread. Will it work? Yes. But might your particular pattern, especially as a new tire, benefit from one type of thread over another? Absolutely. And that's where you just lean on a fly shop employee. I love using online resources, especially these days, to source my tying materials, but there is no replacement for going in and asking a question. And, you know, if you spend a dollar more, you know, if, if someone tries to push the $2.95 spool of thread versus the $1.95 spool of thread, that's probably okay. And uh, go ahead and, and take their advice on that. But there's, you know, who does a great job of it is uh, Tim Flagler and his his videos, Tightline Productions. He almost always in, in his videos for years and years and years talks about preparing the feather for tying in. I just watched his, one of his most recent ones a couple days ago, and even though he's probably said it a million times, he talked about how to select the right feather for this pattern, which feather in the neck he was going to use, which side of the feather he was going to tie in, how to prepare that by trimming and pulling off fibers, and then even in what direction to tie that feather in so that it would wrap better. And he went through that whole explanation. And again, it's something he's probably explained a million times. But the reason why he values that as a professional fly tire and a professional fly tying instructor is that it makes his life easier as a tire and it makes his students learn better as they are learning to tie as well. So if you understand the quality of materials, the purpose of the materials, and the component parts of each material, that can really help you as you are, are learning to tie. I mean... I remember getting my first fly tying kit and thinking, awesome, time to pump out a big puffy March Brown or, or some sort of dry fly and grabbing one of those streamer hackles that, and I found the right, right size, you know, I used the hackle gauge and I found the right size, but that thing was so rigid and, it, and, and after like two or three wraps, there's probably only like four or five feathers, fibers sticking out around that hook because the feather was just awful. It would have been great feather to tie in for some sort of streamer, but definitely not for a dry fly. And those are things where you do that, and you try it again with the exact same feather, and you think it's something wrong with you, but it's, it's actually the material. That's one of my things that I, 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 I might be a little bit more on the side of having the perfectly right tool and equipment and material for the job. But there's sometimes where leaning in that direction is beneficial. And I think fly tying is, is one of those situations, especially if you're working with something more finicky, like uh, feathers being wrapped around a hook. All right, so the first thing is start small. Second thing is learn about materials, and I would say hooks and, and tools. You can fall into that, that same category, and um, but we're not going to spend too much time talking about hooks and tools right now. But you definitely tie in the same on the right hook. You know, you don't want to just find whatever hook. <laughs> that's just uh, that's a recipe for disaster. But I've seen that happen uh, very, very often. Uh, big, heavy gauge hooks, you know, scud hooks, dry flies tied on scud hooks, for example. Anyway. Third thing, don't go big to fix your problems. Don't go big to fix your problems. So one of the things that I've noticed these days is that a lot of people tie a lot of big flies. Now, 
I tie a lot of big flies. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. They are beneficial to catch big fish. If you're particularly targeting large fish, then you need to tie big flies. But I have a sinking suspicion that a lot of people tie big flies because they perceive them to be easier. And in some senses, they are easier to tie. You're not working with fine materials. You're a lot more wiggle room in the, the material selection, kind of like what I was talking about. You know, when you get down to smaller dry flies, you need to have the precisely right sized hackle. Otherwise, it's going to throw the proportions out of whack. When you're working with large materials, you just get a big clump of, of bucktail and you put it on there and then you can kind of adjust it on the fly and make it fit just right. But the fact of the matter is, is that some of the problems that you might have as a beginner or intermediate tire are still going to manifest themselves on larger flies. And they're going to manifest themselves in the proportions being wonky. And oftentimes when the proportions are off, then it's going to impact the way that the fly fishes presents and casts. So I'll give you a great example. When I was doing one of my fly tying attempts back in college, I just got super frustrated and said, you know what I'm just going to do? I'm just going to tie clousers and deceivers from gonna, for, for my warm water, my saltwater fishing. I'm not going to mess around with all this freshwater stuff anymore. It's too hard. I'm going to tie in bigger hooks using bigger materials. And so I banged out a dozen clousers thinking, well, this is simple. You know, you just put the, the, the dumbbell eyes on, you tie a little material on top, tie a little material on the bottom, and it's all set. It's, it's foolproof. And I had a kick boat at the time, and so I kicked out on this giant lake out in South Carolina. And I, I kicked myself out there and I think, all right, time to catch some fish. And I made my first cast and it felt like I was like I, I had hooked onto a branch after that first cast. I thought, what in the world's going on? And I pull it in. And as soon as I can see my clouser coming towards me, it's swimming upside down, which if you know clousers means it's swimming right side up. If that makes sense. So it's swimming hook point down. I think, how in the world did that happened? This thing has the dumbbell eyes on the bottom of the hook, uh, how is it How is it fishing upside down? I know that's very, very difficult to, to explain over a podcast, but why is it fishing the wrong way? And I look at it, and I look at it, and tie, snip it off, tie another one on, exact same thing happened. And this one, it was almost, it was jerking to the right, and, I, and I'm thinking, I thought this was supposed to be simple. Well, get back, look at those flies very carefully, and I just realized that my thread wraps weren't ni nice and tidy and neat and that the material was kind of clumped up off to one side and that I had didn't have the proportions right for the material on the top of the hook versus the bottom of the hook such that even though those dumbbell eyes were tied on the bottom side of the shank of that hook it was flipping over and causing it to ride hook point down because I had so many materials on the wrong side of that hook. And so, again, I know that's not a great visual um, uh, for, for you in your head right now, but I messed up a very simple pattern because I didn't pay attention, which just goes to show that going bigger doesn't always fix problems. Now, I can appreciate how you can really grab onto those materials. Things aren't necessarily going to rip. Things aren't going to come unfurled. You're not doing as much wrapping uh, of delicate materials when you're tying larger flies. But don't think that you're going to solve all your problems and you're going to tie a handful of good streamers, then you can you're a good tire now, so drop back down to those size 14, 16 dries and they're going to work out well. 
really pay attention to those techniques. And that's fine. I mean, work on getting your thread wraps nice and neat and tidy on a larger fly. But then realize that you are going to have to compensate for the, the uh, small size of the hook and the fly and the body of that fly as you go to make those thread wraps and put those materials on those smaller bodies. You can't be as fast and loose in those smaller flies as you can in some of the larger ones. So I would just say don't go big because you're struggling with your tying. There's a time and a place for it, but there's no substitute for really just dialing in those good skills. So I tie a lot of big flies. I tie a lot of small flies. And I would say that I the exact same principle as I started the podcast out with of starting out small is exactly true when it comes to large flies. Don't try to get super complicated super quickly. Try to get those proportions on a clouser or a deceiver right before you get into one of those absolutely nutso wild uh, flies that are popular today. They're great and they work and they fish well, but something that has four or five articulated shanks, you don't want to tie four bad flies and have one unfishable fly, if that makes sense. You want to make sure those proportions are right. If you mess up the proportions or the spacing on one of those shanks in such a way that it caused that fly to spin in the water, you've just spent 45 minutes on a fly that's virtually unfishable. You're going to get snagged, and it's just not going to catch fish. So dial in those basic techniques, and it's going to pay off dividends, and you're going to have fishable flies. They're simple flies, but they're fishable flies. So again, my three more things I wish I knew about fly tying were to start small, are to understand and learn about materials, and to not go big to try to fix your problems. So any thoughts on those or any other things that you wish that you would have known when you started fly tying? Let me know. Matthew at castingacross.com. And then also there is the previous podcast that goes into three other things that I wish I would have known when I started fly tying. This week on castingacross.com, the first article was called Rusty Flybox Tying Time. You can tell kind of where my mind is uh, these days, is in fly tying. So uh, I had shared three articles from the past about different fly tying things. And uh, one of them is a, it's a great little story, and it kind of explains my pragmatic approach to tying flies. So that's called Rusty Flybox Tying Time. Then Wednesday's article is called Trout and Feather February. So every month I submit an article to be posted on Tim Camisa's Trout and Feather blog. And he has a great tying channel. He goes into spectacular depth on how he ties and why he ties the flies and then how he fishes and why he fishes the flies. So that's what I like about Trout and Feather. It kind of separates it from a bunch of other awesome fly tying YouTube channels is that Tim really kind of goes that extra step and it's not just here's a fly but here's the how the why and then what you do with it afterwards and I wrote an article about straying off the beaten path out of necessity these days so uh, you can definitely check that out on my website or go to trout and feather and check it out there this week's recommendation is actually two recommendations, okay? This is not going to be something I get into too much, but two recommendations. And I realized last week that I did an entire podcast about how to fish yourself down to one fly box, but I didn't give any fly box recommendations. Now, that might not be necessary. You probably have a million fly boxes and a bunch of empty ones that you can use, but I did want to offer up my favorite fly boxes when I go down to one 
fly box. So for saltwater, and I mentioned this, I like fishing a fly wallet, and my preferred fly wallet is from Vitavu. Vitavu hand makes all of their stuff in Lemonster, Massachusetts, and they make it to order. And their fly wallets are awesome. They're durable, and they use the fuzzy Velcro, so it's not going to be big, soggy wool on the inside. It is great. It's durable. It holds small flies and large flies, but for saltwater and then also for my larger freshwater streamers and poppers and things like that, I love to use their fly wallets. And for saltwater, I like it because the fly wallets are uh, wide enough where I can stack my smaller flies uh, kind of parallel with the wallet. And if they are larger flies, I can put them in perpendicular and they're not going to get smashed. My feathers aren't going to be hanging out. I know my hooks are safe. And uh, they come in three different sizes. There's an 8-inch, a 10-inch, and a 12-inch. I like the 10-inch. It fits into my packs and into my waders perfectly. And I love fly wallets and the salt because everything kind of has a chance to breathe. And then when I'm done for the day, I open the thing up, I give everything a quick spray down, and I leave that fly wallet open. And then when it's all done, fold it back up. So I'll put a link to the VitaVu fly wallets on the uh, podcast note page on castingacross.com. They run between $30 and $40, but they are indestructible, and they're going to hold plenty of flies for a day out on the water. Now, as far as freshwater goes, um, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of putting tiny flies in fly wallets. It certainly can be done, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not my preference. My absolute favorite fly box it used to be made by um, probably the same company, but distributed by dozens of, of fly shops. These days, people have moved on from it. But I love a foam fly box that has that nylon exterior and magnetic closures, especially if it has ripples on one side and flat on the other. The company that makes them is called Morel, and uh, a number of places online sell them. Uh, I'll put a link to one of those on the show notes of this podcast page on castingacross.com. But I love for time in the mountains or just uh, you know fishing my local streams where I know exactly what I'm going to use if I only have between two and three dozen flies. Their small fly box. It retails for under fifteen bucks, and it's a four inch by three inch by inch and a quarter fly box. It floats. It's indestructible. It closes on its own. I've never had the kind of hinge material rip because it's nylon, and I love the versatility of having the big, wide open flat space and then the the ridges. It protects my hackles on my dry flies, but it also gives me plenty of space to put tiny nymphs or larger streamers. So there's also larger ones if you have a bigger one fly box, I would suggest sticking with the Morel uh, floating fly boxes and just going to a bigger size. But I absolutely love them. They have a number of different sizes, but their small ones are my go-to boxes. Um, they're also kind of ergonomic and soft. So both with the uh, Morel floating fly boxes as well as the VitaVu fly wallets, they are ergonomic and they are flexible. You can put them in a pocket or in a vest or in a pack, and they're not going to be rigid and stick out and cause you any sort of discomfort or problems. Check those out again on castingacross.com on the show notes for this podcast page. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.